This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. 25 years after embarking on its reform era following the fall of the New Order, observers, scholars and global democracy indexes agree that Indonesian democracy is in a state of regression. Recent challenges levelled at key institutions, including the Constitutional Court, the Corruption Eradication Commission and threats to freedom of speech brought by the Information and Electronics Law, are evidence of significant deterioration in the quality and integrity of democracy. Further, over the past two decades, influence and control across the four branches of power, politics, media, civil society and business, is increasingly centred in the hands of only a few. With the elections next year set to deliver a new government and new president, what must be done to halt further damage to Indonesia's democracy and rule of law? What are the risks if it fails to do so? To answer these questions and more, my guest today is Professor Jimli Ashidiki, Professor of Constitutional Law at the University of Indonesia and a member of Indonesia Senate, the Regional Representatives Assembly. Professor Jimli was founding Chief Justice of Indonesia's first constitutional court. He's been an advisor to presidents and ministers and was head of the Presidential Advisory Council and former head of the Advisory Council of Indonesia's National Commission of Human Rights. He is one of Indonesia's leading jurists and distinguished legal thinkers. Hello, Prof Jim Lee. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia and welcome back. Hello. Thank you. Prof You've spoken and written about democratization and really, really interestingly, you position it in a global sense and describe this as a process of transformation, pointing out that democracy has different meanings for different nations, for different communities. What does democracy mean in Indonesia in 2023-24? And where do you think Indonesia is positioned on its path to this transformation that you talk of? Well, I uh, always mention 98% of the countries of the world claim to be democratic, starting from Cuba, China, Russia, and so many other countries claim to be democratic, including Indonesia. Since independence 1945, we claim to hold the principles of the people's sovereignty. That is another term for democracy. But of course, in reality, the difference depends on how the government, the people apply the idea of democracy. As mentioned, since independence, during Sukarno presidency, and then the new order under Suharto presidency, they all claim uh, democratic. But the final positions of the new order, everybody talked that it is not democratic, so we need reform. So this is another terms for democratizations. So I think in Indonesia, we idealize five principles. 
as what is the main theme of French revolutions, liberty, equality, and fraternity. And some scholars in America mentioning liberty, prosperity, and solidarity or, or justice. So actually, these are the same ideals. So we adopt all of that, liberty, equality, fraternity, prosperity, and we add one more. That is ketuhanan yang maha asa, believing in one God. So that is the Pancasila, actually, the five principles of Indonesian democracy. And we idealize freedom. We idealize social justice. But we need also solidarity, the unity of the nations, and kemanusiaan adil dan beradab. That is the humanity, universal humanity. So actually, all those three in American Revolution and also the three in French Revolution, we adopt all. Three plus three become four plus one. That is believing in one God. <laughs> That is democracy in, in our dream. In the dream. Okay, yeah. what's, the what's the reality in 2023? And the reality, of course, we have many problems. Uh, number one, I always mention the cultural traditions. So because of that, Republic is the name of the institutions, but the performance of the institutions influenced by feudal culture. So this is the problem of institutionalization, modernization of the institution. That's our problem. This is a question that's long been asked, perhaps part in other contexts. Does democracy match up with Indonesian culture? I mean, it's a question long asked. Yeah, uh, we need to educate people, but we need enlightened leadership. Leaders who could educate the people. Leaders, not only politicians, who just take, asking, taking, and sometimes robbing. <laughs> you know, that's a normal politicians everywhere. Uh, we need leaders who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way, and uh, could educate people to move modernizing the, the culture. So this is what uh, we need. Transformational leadership is not yet yeah, in power. Those in power, only transactional leaders today. This is a big problem. Indeed. And that's just one. I mean, you've, you've mentioned two external factors that we are all dealing with globally in, in what you've been writing lately, Puck, about oh, yeah, yeah. hate speech and misinformation, those kinds of pressures. How are they coming to bear in Indonesia and threatening or challenging democracy? Of course, this is a new challenge for democracy uh, around the world. All countries are suffering from this new phenomena because of the modern technology, officials become journalists for himself. Indonesia is known as a very polite person, polite culture, but now it is not. It is not. So everybody now uh, try to express their opinion uh, brutally. So because of that, hate speech, animosity among the group of people, Especially one of the very big problems faced by Indonesia is what we call Sara. Sara means ethnicity, religiosity, and race. So when we come to this free digital communication era, 
So hatred and animosity based on race, based on religion, based on ethnicity. In Indonesia, we have thousands of ethnicity. We have also all major religion of the world, although Muslim is the majority, but we have also Hinduism. Before Islam came to Indonesia, majority Indonesian people is Hindu. And before that, also, we have the experience of managing a very big state, big kingdom. Before Majapahit, the Hindu kingdom, we had Buddhist kingdom. It is maritime kingdom, Srivijaya. So all major religion of the world has their own experience, yeah, respective experience in influencing Indonesian culture, including Christianity introduced by European nations during the last three centuries. Mm-hmm. And, and as you said, this is enshrined within the Panchasila, yeah. that there is the acceptance and respect and tolerance for all religions that you mentioned, all those religions that yeah. you mentioned. So what is happening here, but that people today are feeling like they can challenge these principles upon which Indonesia was established. What do you think is at the core of that? Yeah, because everybody feel free and everybody feel they are no control against them because in the social media, everything's there free without control. So during this uh, post-truth era, it's very difficult to communicate in in a good way as before. So we have to live with this new development. Yeah. And as it, you mentioned, there's a lack of leadership showing the way on this because we see many examples of politicians. Even they enjoy the conditions, you know. <laughs> yeah, exploiting them. But Puck, on the flip side of that, we could talk about the information electronics law, which was yeah. ostensibly in order to curb that kind of behavior. What do you think of that law? Or what are the outcomes that we've seen from its implementation so far? Yeah. So we had made special law controlling this freedom of using technology, uh, communication and information, call it ETA law, Electronic and Information Act. But because of this act, uh, we get another problem because sometimes, you know, the official and the, the people could not differentiate between what is critics, what is hatred. So in many cases, you know, the critics against the government, the law enforcement agencies responded. So because of that, the freedom in the public space becoming worse. This is another problem of decreasing the quality of democracy. Yeah, so shrinking that public space. And you mentioned in a talk that you've given recently at Melbourne Law School, this has had a chilling effect, is how you describe it, on freedom of speech. Yeah, that's right. Chilling effects, yeah. You point out how many of those who have been charged under this law were from activist backgrounds, human rights defenders. So it has been used as a weapon against those who would speak out. So the crime related to freedom of speech becoming more and more now in the jail. So today we have overcapacity of the prisons, 208%. But most of them, two kinds of criminal. One is related to narcotics, and the second is 
about this one, the democratic freedom <laughs> everywhere. So this is really regress, backsliding in democratic practices. The original intention is good, how to control the freedom in the media. But the side effect is bad. So you're saying the laws are there, that the intention behind the laws is perhaps good, but that, and I'm quoting you here, it's the rule of man by misusing the law that might be the problem. So Yeah, yeah. yeah this is right. So uh, modern democracy needs to institutionalize the working performance uh, of democratic uh, institutions. But in reality, it doesn't work. Depends on the person posted in the positions. So this is actually not the rule of law, but the rule of man. And this man, unluckily, misusing the law. <laughs> in Indonesia today, yeah, still because of the culture I mentioned, the traditional cultures influence so much. So the institutions is not yet the rule of the law, but the rule of man. And we need to institutionalize the working mechanism in the state. But in reality, what is happening, the institutionalization, because between private persons and his positions, between institutions and the persons, sometimes, you know, intermingle and conflict of interest. Yes, I want to talk about conflict of interest, but while I have you on rule of law and what appears to be misuse of law, really, you have spoken too about the importance of a rule of ethics in Indonesia. Is it lacking, Pak? Is that, is that what you're observing? A, a sense of ethics around the role of public servants and other officials, this kind of value? Yeah. Well, studying from the reform era, actually not only in Indonesia, it's also in Australia and Europe, studying from 1990s. So the United Nations has issued the recommendations about ethics for public office. Yeah, everywhere now, uh, when we establish institutions, we must accompany that institution with code of ethics. So code of ethics applied now in Indonesia, not only for public profession, but also the public services, public official, in executive, in legislature. So everybody talk about the infrastructure of ethics. So this is what I propose for the future uh, arrangement that the rule of ethics must be of similar importance as the rule of law. So we cannot solve modern human problems only through a legal approach, but also ethical approach. As I mentioned, you know, the capacity of uh, Indonesian prisons today is already over capacity, meaning we need to introduce new kinds of ethical sanctions. So not necessary that uh, a public official to be prison, but they have to be, you know, just quit from his position. This is for the sake of the public trust toward the public institutions. So a code of conduct or uh, ethical code does exist for, say, parliamentarians, for example, in the DPR? Yeah, also yeah. in DPD, now in everywhere, 
Yeah, among the judges, we have yeah. already judicial commissions, but it is only for judges. But I try to integrate that in a national system. So mm -hmm. in the future, I think we need the national ethic court, something yeah. like that. Is it being applied in the context that you describe? Are people paying attention or is it just something written on paper? Yeah, it, it must be in actions, of course. Yeah. You know, today the, the ethical systems, it depends on the professions, depends on the public office. So the content of the code of ethics is very different, varies from yeah one to the other. And also the way they enforce that's also not yet integrated. So this is what, what I propose. I have written a special book on this, this issue that one day we need ethical court, we need the rule of law and the rule of ethics. We have also uh, to understand that Indonesian constitution, not only supreme source of law, but also supreme source of ethics. So constitutional law, and we have also constitutional ethics, something like this. <laughs> I like it. And it really comes back to what you mentioned earlier um, about conflict of interest here, but to set some guardrails around people's behaviour, particularly people who are in high office, who are in business, who have control of these very powerful institutions that at the moment, as you've described it, there are no constraints on them to work across all of those different institutions. Right. In Tell us about your theory around this conflict of interest, which, well, it's beyond just business to government, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So the conflict of interest today, I think, of course, it is very important to discuss about conflict of interest between business and politics. As I many times described what was introduced by Sheldon Woolin about inverted totalitarianism, he tried to differentiate between the Hitlerian totalitarianism and today's totalitarianism. Uh, during the Hitler, you know, public office, public leaders control all private life of the people. And on inversion today, private leaders, private corporations control all public affairs. So this is the dangers of uh, this uh, business and politics conflict of interest. But this is only two between uh, politics and business. I try to mention uh, something more dangerous. That is, this is what I call the four forces of macro politics. We have to differentiate and separate one, the state, civil society, corporation, and the media. Today, these four forces is very important. The media, for example, mass media, electronic media, social media, construct and influence the perceptions of public. So the existence of the media, the existence of business, corporation, the existence of the civil society organization must be separated from politics. Now, there is a tendency today, yeah, in many countries, especially we are, you know, experiencing today in Indonesia, big businessmen, and then very easy for them to, you know, 
to provide donations to NGO which has thousands of members and then easily for them to be appointed become advisor or chairman they become important figures of that civil society organization and finally they try to establish political parties and there are already some political parties today owned by established by big tycoon so <laughs> what for this man yeah establish a political parties if it is not for his own interest it must be he wants to be candidate for presidency or vice president or at least he want to be the king maker so this is what i said a very very dangerous if one day this man successful in controlling all the power yeah very very dangerous that will be in one hand four branches of power become one and that is another form new totalitarianism yeah and and Pak, i mean what you've described actually it's so very close to almost being reality in indonesia currently right yeah yeah i i just don't mention the man this is a phenomenon since 20 years the last 20 years this is not critic against the current government no this is a political yeah. phenomenon it's what's emerged as indonesia's political culture almost cost the culture and then the modern institutions not yet established very different from australia and america very different but uh, in indonesia we still need time need time yeah. to modernize the institutions and avoiding the influence of this bad cultural traditions but pak what strikes me is interesting is that in the early years after reformasi and you pointed this out many many organizations were born that were to be independent state organizations that could be checks and balances that could provide guidance on human rights on uh, corruption could be keeping to account these parts of indonesian political life but as you've pointed out and and we know many of these institutions have been under some considerable strain I'm thinking in particular here of the Corruption Eradication Commission the KPK but also the General Election Commission the KPU and other such institutions. So what's happened there because there was so much hope here. during uh, the first period of establishment we idealized them become independent independent from president independent from government but the way to appoint the members involved the, the PR involved the parliament so i said they come out from lion but goes to crocodiles then the crocodiles 500 crocodiles so it cannot be controlled easily as uh, we control the president so the influence of politics still there today and when the president and the parliament become very strong yeah because of the political coalitions very strong majority and then the role of these independent bodies independent institution including the kapika including the kpu the electoral commissions is now not so ideal as before electoral commission i always mention about the existence of this institution is the port place the port branch of micro power so we have four branch of power in macro sense 
state, civil society, market, and the media, but in micro sense, executive, legislature, judicial power, and mixed function, including the KPKA, including the Electoral Commission. Why Electoral Commission must be understood in the port position? Because the president is the participants of election. The legislature is also the participant of the election, while the judiciary will be decided the result of election. So this electoral commission must be in the fourth place. It is not under the president, not under the influence of the parliament. It must be in its own position. This is what I always promote. In reality, not like that anymore as it was before. Yeah, so the backsliding again that you mentioned. Backsliding also, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the judiciary, of course, as one of these pillars, and but we've also seen the Constitutional Court under strain too. Tell us a little bit about the case that you have been very outspoken about, the replacement of one of the members of the Constitutional Court last year. Professor Aswanto, yeah, you're right. Uh, when they decided a landmark decision, actually, because it is the first time the Constitutional Court announced the unconstitutionality of the lawmaking process. So this is formal judicial review, not the content, but the process of the making. So the due process of law is not only due process in law enforcing, but also due process in lawmaking. So this is the first time that is undang-undang cipta kerja. The job creation law. Yeah, that is the first omnibus law used in Indonesia, but when it is applied, it is actually misused. It was myself promoter of the application of this uh, legislative omnibus technique. But what I meant by legislative technique is not like this. It, it, this is too thick. 1,000 pages, 97 law integrated into one. It is only 100 days. What did you have in mind when you proposed omnibus as a technique? That's very important to, you know, make Indonesian law regulations harmonious and integrated because that's yeah. different from Australia's common law countries, judge-made law. Uh, we inherited the civil traditions, so we make so many laws, many regulations, and the regulation and the law, it depends on the title. But in reality, in the, it, its application, its implementation, there must be so many conflict between norms. Yeah, So we have to uh, harmonize this legal system by using common law traditions that is omnibus. So this is what I meant. But in, in its applications, that's uh, not a problem. So because of that law was annulled, by the Supreme Court, including Aswanto as the vice. He did not make dissenting opinion. So majority members of the court declare that the law was unconstitutional because of the process of the, the making. So because the law is very important for the government and also the parliament, they got angry. They got angry. You know, so they think that this three judges appointed or uh, elected by the parliament 
another three elected by the president should be in conformity with the government policy, something like that. So they got angry, so they tried to fire. Actually, they intended to fire two persons, one from the president, one from the parliament, and they tried with the parliament. So I was as one of the chief justice of the court. I came to the court and I invite the former judges, including the one who is now become minister of coordinating minister, Professor Mahput. I call them and I invite them in a meeting. I said, this is very dangerous. This is the first time. Yeah. But actually many, many constitutional court in the world have similar, you know, experience. But this is uh, very serious, I said. So we have to stop the idea to... to Undermine the court. Yeah, undermine the court. And please, you convince the presidents, I said, this is wrong, this is wrong. Because the court, the judges are independent. They are not coming from parliament. Three, not coming from the presidents. The president, the Supreme Court, and the parliament is just elect them, not own them. So once they are already the, the judges, they are independent. So you, you cannot. So, but the president then, you know, mentions the alibi that no, this is already decided by the parliament. So yeah. administratively, I have to issue the decree. Ah, yeah. So, yeah. so I got angry. This is really. I know that the president himself got angry. Also, the same with the parliament. <laughs> Right. Everybody's angry. Parliament is all-powerful in this case. Yeah. So it sets a dangerous precedent, no part for, for the future where parliaments can take powers away from the Constitutional Court by removing judges that they don't like the opinions of? Yeah, yeah. That's very dangerous. But I hope that this is the first and the last. I hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it happened also in many places in the world when the first time constitutional court was established uh, well many politicians in the executive uh, branch and also the legislature they got angry with the decisions of the constitutional court but i said we have to learn that this is not good yeah okay it is already done that you fired uh, aswanto but please this is the the last time i <laughs> said who are the Indonesian politicians today, the lawmakers of today? That's the question, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it comes back to your point about de-institutionalization, that process that you're recognizing where the personal and the public are so closely entwined. And you've pointed out too, again, related to conflict of interests, the amount of members of the DPR and the DPD and the MPR who are also entrepreneurs, business Entrepreneur, people. yeah. 60% of this period. 60% of the members today, the current members, are entrepreneurs or at least owning shares in uh, private companies. Uh, but this is only DPR, National Legislature. But I'm talking about all over Indonesia, local legislature, local parliament, and also in the executive, the governor and mayor, 87 mayors all over Indonesia. Do they have to disclose their business interests and it's, it's all transparent? Well, we have to regulate this first by law. 
we have to regulate the prohibitions of multiple you know positions and conflict of interest between business politics media and civil society we have to differentiate that and uh, without that i think very difficult to just educate them advise them religiously or morally no it, it doesn't work so we have <laughs> it doesn't work we have to create law on the prohibitions of this bad habit yeah and that doesn't happen overnight that kind of education yes, of course change behavior yeah. uh, and even though you can create the law well the law has to be created by the parliamentarians themselves yeah. <laughs> that's the challenge that, that's, that's the you. problem so so we need you know enlightened personality enlightened leadership of the president well i try to promote the idea of evolution after 25 years reformation we need to uh, have another reform second wave of reform reform to transform and within that we have to evaluate about the institutional performance and then legal instrument have to be reformed including for example the kpk you know kpk is only in the in the downstream functions while yeah. we have to reform also the upstream corruption is only put in the downstream we are just busy in the quality of spending while the quality of planning we don't care we have to solve the problem integratedly uh, not only case by case yeah uh, so epica is just one Yeah, it's much more systemic the change that is needed systemic and that change, yeah. your, your your discussion about ethics is relevant I think as you know alongside the legal kind of instruments that you'd like to see around limiting conflict of interest opportunities. So yeah. it all absolutely makes sense and I guess you've spoken before about Indonesia's democracy being and you described it as immature. I guess it's this process of maturation Um, of the second wave, I really like that idea. But we have to wrap up. We could talk forever, but Puck, I guess we have to talk about the elections for a minute. What is your feeling, given given this quite bleak picture that <laughs> you yeah. paint? What are your hopes for the election next year? Well, I hope that this election will create new leadership, as I mentioned. Hopefully, yeah, the new leadership will be more. enlightened and we can discuss with him or with her how we transform how we reform to transform for the next uh, 20 years toward indonesia emas or golden age of indonesia so this is very important because this year we are also discussing the law of long time planning that is also about 20 years planning so we need to have such kind of leadership in the future but of course this coming uh, election is very difficult also many ask questions about whether the uh, uh, political identity based on identity racial identity is still be there next year i think it cannot be avoided it yeah. must be there 
So we have to, you know, prepare for that. You know that Jokowi, this is the word, uh, Japanese word, chawe chawe. He try not to be uh, natural. Yeah, one of the candidates he prefer. And if he shows to the people about his preference, then of course, you know, in the climate of feudalistic culture, is very, yeah. very influential. So because the, the, the neutrality of the bureaucracy, the neutrality of the apparatus is at stake. Uh, this is another problem. <laughs> oh my, don't end on another problem, Park. <laughs> so more question than more problem. <laughs> well, that's what we're here for, to talk about that and uh, and shed light on that. And on that note, thank you so much, Park. Now we could talk for many more episodes, so we'll have you back another time. Thank you so much. I hope so. Thank you. See you again. That was Professor Jimli Ashidiki from the University of Indonesia. Talking Indonesia will return on the 17th of August, hosted by Tito Ambio. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thank you.